John. Well, yesterday marked uh, the 49th year anniversary of the legalization of abortion on demand in our country through the infamous uh, court case Roe versus Wade. And uh, since that date, uh, nearly 64 million little babies, little boys and girls have had their lives taken away uh, through this scourge upon our nation. And one of the things that we have resolved to do as a church is to set aside some times where we would remind ourselves of this great evil and remind ourselves to think rightly in response to this great evil. And so if you're our guest this morning, we're so grateful that you're here. Uh, every January, we set aside two weeks as a church to talk about two tough topics, one being what the Bible says about racism and the other what the Bible says about abortion. And this morning, we'll conclude that mini-series before we get back to the Gospel of Matthew, and we'll talk together about another tough topic, the top topic of the sanctity of human life. And this morning, uh, I want us to ask the question that you see on the screen behind me, is the Bible really pro-life? And you probably would not have thought much of a question like that in recent years, but perhaps you have heard or seen an advancing argument amongst unbelievers to try to paint the Scriptures as pro-choice. So, for example, last January... In Washington, D.C., a young man dressed in pink approached a woman named Michelle who was in front of the Supreme Court building during a pro-life event, and he asked her an abrupt question. Are you a Christian? Now, of course, and that question made sense in one, in one way because for at least the past 40 years, Christians in the United States of America have been among the strongest defenders for the sanctity of unborn life. And of course, we could go back through the pages of church history, and we would find a clear and consistent opposition to abortion for nearly 2,000 years. So even if she was a bit taken aback when this man approached her and just abruptly asked her, are you a Christian? Michelle answered, yes. His reply was even more startling. He said, and I quote, well then, what do you have to say when your God supports abortion? And then he quoted a passage from the Bible that he had memorized. Last February, a month later, in South Carolina, in the House of Representatives, brave lawmakers in that state were on the brink of passing a law that would protect the life of an unborn baby once a heartbeat was detected. You've heard about these so-called heartbeat bills, and of course, you know that they are often met with incredible opposition. And of course, you would expect that the same would happen in South Carolina. And yes, there was vocal opposition to this bill as it was on the floor. But one of the ways that it was opposed might surprise you. Representative Justin T. Bamberg said that there are those who say abortion shouldn't happen because the Bible doesn't allow them. Now, what would you expect Representative Bamberg to say next? He might have said, well, we don't believe the Bible is the Word of God. 
or we don't believe the Bible has any place in our society, or we don't believe the Bible should dictate the, the personal freedoms and choices of individual citizens. But this representative did none of those things. Instead, he simply read a Bible verse that he claimed supported abortion. The same passage, it turns out, that Michelle had heard on the steps of the Supreme Court a month earlier. In October of last year, a young lady named Amanda posted a TikTok video that received over two and a half million views. Perhaps some of you have seen it. And she began the video by arguing that in the Bible, quote, in the Bible, God quite literally instructs abortion, end quote. And then she turned to the same Bible passage that was referenced in the two earlier stories. So turn in your Bibles, if you will, this morning to Numbers chapter 5. This is a, a strange and obscure passage that has become increasingly popular among defenders of abortion who would twist it to argue that the Bible isn't really pro-life. So this morning, once again, let's go into the eye of the storm together to another tough text to determine what God's word says and what it means. Now, while you're turning to the book of Numbers, let's just remember the context. The book of Numbers is written to the people of God as they are at the base of Mount Sinai. You remember God rescued them out of Egypt through 10 plagues, brought them to Mount Sinai. There, Moses is on a mountain receiving the law from God, and they're there for about a year. And at the end of that time at Mount Sinai, the book of Numbers picks up the story. And Numbers chapter 5 begins with some instructions about what to do when someone or something affects the purity of the camp. If you remember in the book of Exodus, God gave instructions for his people on how they should worship him, and he determined that the camp, the place where God's people were, would be a holy place because God would dwell there. There would be a, a tabernacle, a tent where God's people would worship. And God gave his people instructions on what to do when uncleanliness, impurity entered into that camp. Now, sometimes that impurity was obvious, like an individual infected with leprosy. And so the beginning of Numbers 5 gave instructions on how to put someone outside of the camp if they were impure by the, by the, the, the disease we call leprosy. Sometimes that impurity was something that you couldn't see, but it was confessed. And so Numbers 5 gives instructions for how you were to deal with someone when they confessed sin, confessed impurity, how you could restore that relationship with the Lord and the camp could be made clean. But what happens when impurity was suspected, but there was no physical evidence of it? What happened when sin was suspected, but there's no verbal confession? Our text today gives us such a scenario. Numbers 5, beginning in verse 11, gives special instructions for a husband suspecting that his wife is caught in the sin of adultery. He didn't catch her in the act, and so he has no evidence to prove it, but he suspects it. He's jealous of it. So the book of Numbers prescribes a strange 
ritual. The husband would take his wife to the priest along with the ingredients for a grain offering. And then the text says that the priest would take a clay jar, fill it with water from the tabernacle, sprinkle a little dust from the tabernacle floor inside the jar, and then hand it to the woman. And let's pick up next at what happens in Numbers chapter 5, beginning in verse 19. Then the priest shall make her take an oath, saying, If no man has lain with you, and if you had not turned aside to uncleanness while you were under your husband's authority, be free from this water of bitterness that brings the curse. But if you have gone astray, though you are under your husband's authority, and if you had defiled yourself and some man other than your husband has lain with you, then let the priest make the woman take the oath of the curse and say to the woman, The Lord make you a curse and an oath among your people. When the Lord makes your thigh fall away and your body swell, may this water that brings the curse pass into your bowels and make your womb swell and your thigh fall away. And the woman shall say, Amen, Amen. Then the priest shall write these curses in a book and wash them off into the water of bitterness. And he shall make the woman drink the water of bitterness that brings the curse And the water that brings the curse shall enter into her and cause bitter pain. Go down to verse 27. And when he has made her drink the water then, if she has defiled herself and has broken faith with her husband, the water that brings the curse shall enter into her and cause bitter pain. And her womb shall swell and her thighs shall fall away and the woman shall become a curse among her people. But if the woman has not defiled herself and is clean then she shall be free and shall conceive children. Now, I don't know about you, but that is a weird Bible passage. There is so much in this chapter that we read and you just say, huh? That is strange. That is weird. It is very peculiar to modern ears what in the world is going on in this text. And so our goal this morning is to actually look at what this text says and what it means and ask ourselves, is this a text that would promote the killing of the unborn? Now, before we dive in to the meaning of this text. Let me just say something to you, brothers and sisters and friends gathered with us this morning. Every time we read the Bible, every time, whether it's a strange passage like this or not, we can approach or we will approach the text with one of two heart postures. Either you will approach the text with suspicion or superiority The Bible must be wrong. God is harsh. God is cruel. I cannot believe that. Or we will approach the Scriptures with submissive faith. God is always good. God is always just. God is always right. His Word is always pure. We're going to approach the passage with God's help with the eyes of faith. If you're in this room and you call yourself a Christian, that's how Christians read the Bible. We don't stand above the Bible to judge it. We submit ourselves underneath it, and the Bible judges us. If you're in this room and you're not a follower of Jesus, you might feel like we've already stacked the deck in our favor before we even begin. 
But let me just say to you, I hope you'll see as we walk through this passage together that, that reading the Bible with the eyes of faith is not ignoring what's there. It's actually reading the Bible reasonably, reading it as the authors intended it to be read. So with that said, let's begin with four observations from this text that reveal what God cares about. What does God care about and what does Numbers 5 tell you about what God cares about? Number one, God cares about the purity of his people. God cares about the purity of his people. Before we can begin to unpack the particulars of a passage like this, we need to understand its context. In fact, I would argue it's impossible to rightly understand even the simplest sentence without understanding the context in which that sentence was said. Uh, Alistair, Alistair uh, uh, McIntyre in his book, After Virtue, illustrates it this way. He says, imagine that you're in a bus and a young man next to you looks at you and says this, the name of the common wild duck is Histrionicus Histrionicus. Now, now, you remember your Latin, so you know that what this young man says is true. That is the name of the common wild duck. The problem is, why is he saying this? It could be that uh, he's crazy, right? You're on the bus, crazy people on the bus sometimes, and he just randomly tells you the name of the common duck in Latin. Maybe he, he mistakes you from somebody else. Maybe, maybe yesterday he was in the library and he saw someone that looked a lot like you and that person approached him and says, what's the Latin name for the, the common wild duck? And he sees you and he says, aha, there's that person. Let me tell them the answer. Or maybe he's a spy and he's, he's waiting at a prearranged rendezvous point uttering a secret code sentence which will identify him to his contact. The only way to make sense of that sentence is understanding the context behind it, right? The same is true for God's Word. So with all due respect to our friends and neighbors that would go to a passage like Numbers 5 and say, aha, look at this, the Bible isn't pro-life, your God is strange. Without actually doing some work to set the context, they haven't really understood what's going on here. So let's do that work. What's the context of Numbers chapter 5? Well, before God spoke a word of the law to Moses, listen to what he said in Exodus 19. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So the people of Israel, the nation of Israel in the time of Moses were given this job by God. You're going to be a light to the nations. You're going to be a kingdom of priests. You're going to be set apart, and you're going to show the world what I'm like. That's their job. And Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers show us their job description. Here's how you're supposed to show, God, show the world what God is like. Of course, we know 
that the people of Israel fail, don't they? And so in the book of 1 Peter, Peter will say, not to an ethnic group, not to national Israel, but to God's people, the church, you are a royal priesthood. You're a kingdom of priests. Christians everywhere now, we have been given this job to reflect God's glory to the nations, but we have not been given this same set of instructions on how to do that. We said a few weeks ago, Jesus sets us free from bondage to the law. But the lesson here in Numbers 5, the context is that God wants his people to be pure. Sin is going to enter the camp. Impurity is going to enter into the people of God. And God gives his people instructions on how to uphold that purity because this is the place where God dwells. Because he cares about their purity, he creates a way for his people to deal with strange scenarios like what do you do when a husband suspects his wife of impurity but he isn't sure? God gives them instructions on how to do that. Now, here on this side of the cross, does God care any less about the purity of his people? No. But God guards the purity of his people differently. See, in the Old Testament, God's covenant people was a nation, the nation of Israel. But today, citizens of heaven are living in all the, all the nations of the earth, speaking all kinds of languages and all types of cultures. Now, God guards the purity of his people through the institution of the local church as we faithfully guard our membership and our discipline. That's the first thing we learn that God cares about from this text. God cares about the purity of of this people, of his people. But notice, this isn't a way to deal with any suspected sin. God, in Numbers 5, gives his people a test to deal with one specific type of sin, the sin of adultery, which leads to our second observation. God cares about the health of marriages. God cares about the health of marriages. There is not, in Numbers 5, a test for a wife to determine if her husband stole some of the french fries when she wasn't looking. Some of the husbands are thinking, wow, praise God. That's good, right? Children, there is no test given to us in the scriptures for parents to determine if you're telling your parents the truth or not. I don't know about you, parents, but sometimes it's hard to believe our kids are telling us the truth. You ask them, did you, get, or, did you get into the Oreos? And there's like brown all over their face. And they say, no, mommy, I didn't. It's kind of hard to, tell the, to really believe you're telling the truth. There is not a test in Numbers 5 to determine the honesty of your children. There is one test like this in all of Scripture. It's right here. And it deals with the protection of marriages. All sin is harmful. But sins that threaten the health and stability of a marriage are particularly damaging because as marriages erode, so too does society. God, God doesn't just, let me just say this to you, those of you married in this room, God doesn't just care about the institution of marriage abstractly. God cares about your marriage, Christian. 
He cares about your relationship with your husband, your relationship with your wife. He cares specifically about you. God cares about marriage. Now, in this passage, there are two threats to the marriages that are dealt with in Numbers chapter 5. Two threats. The first threat is unconfessed sin. First threat is unconfessed sin. So you've got a wife, potentially, who has been unfaithful to her husband, but has managed to keep it a secret. She's managed to cover up any evidence. God knows the damage that that will have on that relationship. Let me tell you something, brothers and sisters. Unconfessed sin is like carbon monoxide in a marriage. It's, cut, it's colorless, it's odorless, but it will eat away the life and the health and the vibrancy of the marriage until it falls apart. God cares about that. God cares about the health of your marriage. He cares about the health of the marriages and his old covenant people, and so he provides for these marriages. Here is a way to root out unconfessed sin. Or at the end of the book of Numbers, Numbers 32, the scripture says, be sure your sin will find you out. A wife whose sin is unconfessed in this way will be brought before the priest to undergo this strange ritual and her sin will be found out. She won't be able to hide it from the eyes of an all-seeing God. Let me just stop for just a second to the Christians in the room. This is incredible mercy. I think we tell ourselves that we want our sin to remain hidden. But the most gracious thing God can do to you, Christian, is to expose your unconfessed sin. Because the longer you hide it, the longer you bury it, it will consume you. It will change you from the inside out. It will gnaw you, and it will corrupt every single relationship in your life. This is grace. So too, when God exposes your sin, even though it's painful. So God creates this test in Numbers 5 to expose unconfessed sin in a marriage. Why? Because he cares about marriages. The second threat in this text is the threat of uncontrolled jealousy. The threat of uncontrolled jealousy. There's a husband in the passage, and the husband is concerned that his wife has been unfaithful. The text actually, actually says she might have been faithful. Perhaps she's done nothing wrong, but the jealousy is uncontrolled. That uncontrolled jealousy, that jealousy that will not believe the truth will eat away at a marriage too. I say uncontrolled jealousy because there is a right, healthy amount of jealousy in a marriage, right? The Bible says that God is a jealous God. A a good husband, a, a godly husband should be jealous for his wife's exclusive affections. He shouldn't want her to give herself to another man. Ladies, it's, it's right for you to have a healthy jealousy for the affections of your husband. But an uncontrolled jealousy, 
Holly and I had friends in college that were dating, and we would often do double date stuff with this couple. And inevitably, at some point during the meal or the game we were playing, they would start fighting because one of them was jealous with the other. That's uncontrolled jealousy. Uncontrolled jealousy can eat up a marriage. God doesn't want that for the marriages of his people under the Mosaic Covenant. So he creates this test. It will expose the unconfessed sin of an unfaithful wife, but it will also expose the uncontrolled jealousy of an untrusting husband. So this test, if the wife is, has been faithful, it will reveal that the husband has been untrusting. And he will be forced to confess his jealousy to his wife as sin so that the relationship can be restored. Again, this test is a gift of grace to God's old covenant people. Now, God still cares about the health of marriages today. Thankfully, living under the new covenant, we do not have this test of bitter water. Ladies, we're not lining anybody up after the service today. I don't have any dust from the tabernacle, okay? This is, a, this is a specific law given for a specific people in a specific time. But God cares for your marriage just as much today as he did for the old covenant people. He has given you instead something far better than a test like this. He has given you his completed word. He has given you his indwelling spirit. He has given you the gathered church so that your marriage may be guarded. He loves you. He cares about the health of marriages. But perhaps, ladies in the room especially, might be looking at this text and you're still feeling like, this just isn't fair, right? I mean, this entire test just seems a little bit one-sided, which leads to a third observation. God cares about the protection of the vulnerable. God cares about the protection of the vulnerable. Now, what's a major thing missing from this test in Numbers chapter 5? Talk at me. What's a major thing missing? There's no test for who? For the husband, right? I mean, adultery is a two-way street, is it not? Why is it that only women are subjected to a test like this? What's wrong with that? And maybe you read that and you say, come on, this is why it's so hard for me to trust the Bible. It feels so patriarchal and oppressive. What do we make of, what do we make of that? What do we make of a passage like this and an apparent imbalance like this? Well, on the one hand, this test is just another effect of the curse. If you zoom out and go back to Genesis chapter 3, when Adam and Eve fell, do you remember the curse that God gave to the woman? In Genesis 3 verse 16, he says to the woman, your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. One of the effects of the fall, one of the effects of sin on our world, and we've been seeing it played out in different ways for thousands of years, is that the strong continually oppress the weak. And often, that's men oppressing 
women. Find a culture where women were not at some point mistreated. Find it in human history. Where they were not at some times oppressed. Well, and you might say, well, that doesn't make it right. That's true, but this is a sad reality in a fallen world. Virtually every culture at one point or another has subjugated vulnerable people, including and perhaps especially women. Maybe you say, well, not every culture does that. Liberalism and and modernism have created a culture where women are no longer oppressed by men. Are you sure about that? Are you sure we live in a culture where women are no longer oppressed by men? I would point your attention to just some of the recent debates over female sports in our culture and ask yourself if women are still being oppressed by men. This is what the curse does. This is what the fall does. It creeps its way in like poison in a bottle to every corner of society, and it leads to oppression of the weak. And often that's women. And perhaps then your response is, well, this is the Bible. This is God's law. If God wanted to create an institution or an environment that was better for women, he could have done it. Brother, sister, he did. In fact, if you compare what's going on in Numbers 5 to what usually happened in situations like this, it would astonish you. This test with bitter water in Numbers 5 is what historians and sociologists call a trial by ordeal. Trial by ordeal. Trials by ordeal were, were common in the ancient Near East in this time, and they've been common through much of history. If someone was convicted or if someone was accused of a crime and there was no evidence and there were no witnesses, then often the accused would be forced to go through a trial by ordeal to determine their innocence. So in some cultures, if a woman was accused of adultery without any evidence, she would be told to submerge her hand in a boiling boiling bowl of water. And if her hand was not scalded, then she was declared innocent. Or others were told to walk over hot coals. If your feet weren't burned, you were innocent. Some were forced to hold on to hot irons. Their ability to do so without being burned proved their innocence, supposedly. Some were thrown into rivers and lakes, and if they sunk, they were declared innocent, although they were also dead. If they floated, then they were considered guilty, at which point they would also be dead. Do you see how the the decks were stacked against the accused? And how God's word comes in and provides life and hope and a difference from the culture around? Now, all those trials by ordeal that were popular in the ancient Near East, popular in the medieval world, even popular here in our country, things like the Salem witch trials, Those trials by ordeal all had three things in common. First, they assumed the guilt of the accused. Second, they were cruel. Think about someone 
holding on to hot irons or being thrown into water or putting their hand in scalding hot water. They were all cruel. And third, surviving the trial by ordeal usually required a miracle. It required a miracle to survive. This test in Numbers 5 is the exact opposite on all three counts. In Numbers 5, you were assumed innocent rather than guilty. These ladies were not treated as if they were guilty by their husbands. They were brought to a third party, a priest. The husband couldn't take matters into his own hand. He couldn't mistreat his wife just because he assumed she was guilty. He had to bring her to the priest. This wasn't cruel. Now, it would be weird and uncomfortable, but drinking water with a little bit of dust in you, and it isn't going to hurt you, is it? Guys, that, some of you guys do that all the time, right? It wasn't cruel. And thirdly, and most importantly, unlike the trials by ordeal, where it required a miracle to save you, in this trial, it required a miracle to condemn you. Again, water with a little dust in it isn't going to hurt anybody. It would take a miracle to do what the text says would happen to the woman who was guilty. And so again, in this strange, confusing, bizarre, peculiar law is grace for the people of God. One commentator notes that this law was, quote, not so much designed to punish unfaithful wives, although it did, It was primarily to protect innocent women from possessive, abusive husbands who were consumed by irrational fits of jealousy, creating a format for channeling the man's rage and deflecting it from his wife, end quote. God cares about the protection of the vulnerable. Now, perhaps you've been listening all along to this sermon And you've been wondering, what in the world does any of this have to do with abortion? I gave you, at the beginning of the sermon, three examples of people using this passage to argue that the Bible is not pro-life. Where do they get that? Leads us to our final observation that God cares about the punishment of the wicked. God cares about the punishment of of the wicked. Every time this passage is used in an attempt to argue that the Bible isn't pro-life, it's almost always quoted from one specific Bible translation. Let me read the verse again for you one more time in the ESV, the Bible I'm preaching from, and then put on the screen for you the main translation that is used to argue that the Bible is not pro-life. Listen to Numbers 5, verse 27, if you want to follow along. When he had made her drink the water, then, if she has defiled herself and has broken faith with her husband, the water that brings the curse shall enter into her and cause bitter pain, and her womb shall swell, and her thigh shall fall away, and the woman shall become a curse among her people. Now listen to the same verse in the 2011 version of the New International Version. Numbers 527 from the NIV. If she has made herself impure and been unfaithful to her husband, this will be the result. 
When she is made to drink the water that brings a curse and causes bitter suffering, it will enter her, her abdomen will swell, and her womb will miscarry, and she will become a curse. See the issue? Her womb will miscarry. Aha, the pro-choicer says. God is forcing a woman to miscarry. That is forced abortion. Now, before we go any further, this is not an attack on the NIV. I think Kenny joked last week, some people call it the nearly inspired version. Okay, this is not an attack on the NIV. If that's your preferred Bible, that's fine. But we need to understand, anytime you're reading the Scripture, you're always reading a translation. Unless you're reading the original, you're reading a translation from the original. So you read an English translation, you're reading somebody who has, usually a committee, has taken the Greek text or the Hebrew text, and they've tried to put it in English so you can understand it. So too with the NIV. The NIV is one out of only two English translations that use the word miscarry. The other translation is a, a translation called the Common English Bible. It's not a very popular translation. You may have never heard of the CEB. But all five denominations responsible for the CEB are, they promote abortion as denominations, Christian, supposedly Christian denominations. Only two, the NIV and the Common English Bible use the word miscarry here in the text. The NIV has only been doing so since 2011. There's two older versions of the NIV, one in 78 and one in 84, and neither older versions of the NIV use this term miscarry. So here's the question. Is the NIV right? Does this passage promote forced abortions? Does it undermine the Christian's claim that the Bible is pro-life? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. The text doesn't say anything. You read Numbers 5 carefully, it doesn't say anything about the woman being pregnant. If you look at Numbers verse, uh, chapter 5, verse 13, the text even says that this is, a, this is a test. The test of the bitter water can be given, or it's given to a woman who is suspected of adultery, but there's no evidence of adultery. Therefore, she's probably not, what? Pregnant. Probably not pregnant. Wayne Grudem says there are two Hebrew words for miscarriage, and neither of those words is used here. The phrase in the Hebrew says, her thigh shall fall away. And it likely refers to future infertility, not miscarriage or abortion. In fact, I would argue, if you just look at the context, it's pretty clear that's the punishment. Look at verse 28. Numbers 5, 28, if the woman has not defiled herself and is clean, then she shall be free and shall what? Conceive children. The punishment for unfaithfulness would be barrenness, but the reward for faithfulness would be fruitfulness. This is not a passage that promotes or endorses abortion no matter what the progressive might try to argue. Now, even if, even if the NIV was right, and I don't think it is, 
this text still would not justify abortion. By the way, Christian, we do not argue for the sanctity of human life based on one Bible verse. We argue for the sanctity of human life because the entire thrust of the scriptures argues that we are created in the image of God known by Him. This is not an argument that rises or falls on one verse alone. Furthermore, this passage is not about a woman exercising her right to choose. It's about God exercising his right to judge. The, the priest is not giving this woman an abortive drug to, to kill her baby. Dirty water doesn't cause abortions. And remember, the curse only falls on the woman if she's guilty, not on every woman. Our sin, Christian often looks so appealing, but in the end, it is a bitter cup with bitter consequences. God will punish the wicked. Now, I want you to imagine that you're there at Mount Sinai when Moses reads this law to you about a bitter cup to drink. If you're there, Mount Sinai, automatically your mind's going to go to another story. It had happened probably about a year earlier. You remember when Moses was on the mountain receiving the Ten Commandments, what were God's people doing at the base of the mountain? They set up for themselves a golden calf. They began to worship this golden calf so that when Moses comes down the mountain, he finds God's people breaking pretty much all of the commandments that Moses was bringing down to them. By the way, that's a picture of the entire Old Testament, isn't it? God gives his people this law, and they are repeatedly unable to keep it. That's why we need Jesus. And you remember that, that Moses has this golden calf smashed and ground into powder and poured into cups for the people to what? To drink it. They would be reminded of another bitter cup that they would be forced to drink. Their sin would, would be ingested. They would not be able to escape it anymore. The sin actually comes inside of you and becomes a part of you, and you are unable to flee from it. But we who are on this side of the cross should also think about another cup, a cup that our sister prayed about when we began our service this morning. As Jesus knelt in the Garden of Gethsemane on the night that he was betrayed and prayed, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Like every woman in Numbers 5, Jesus too would be accused. But unlike some of the women who were guilty, Jesus was falsely accused, and yet he would willingly drink that bitter cup. Unlike the cup in Numbers 5, the cup Jesus drank wasn't designed to determine his guilt. The cup that Jesus drank was a cup reserved for the guilty. It was the cup that you and I deserved, the cup of God's wrath that we deserved to drink down to the dregs. Jesus drank for us. 
He was pouring into himself the filth of your sin and mine. The scripture says, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. In Numbers 5, when someone was unclean, they were put outside of the camp because if you came in contact with an unclean person and you were clean, you would become unclean. But when Jesus arrives on the scene, the exact opposite happens. When Jesus drinks that bitter cup and it becomes unclean, you and I who touch him through faith, who are connected to him by grace alone, through faith alone, we don't become unclean. We actually become what? Clean. That's the good news of the gospel. That's what our friends and neighbors need to hear If they take you to Numbers 5 and say that the Bible is pro-abortion, they need to hear, not first and foremost, an argument about abortion, but they need to see the second cup that Jesus Christ drank for them, dying in their place and rising from the dead so that whoever believes in him can have eternal life. In just a moment, we're going to sing about that cup. And we're going to sing a couple of lines from a very old hymn. I want you to listen to these words before we sing together. Death and the curse were in my cup. O Christ, t'was full for thee, but thou hast drained the last dark drop. Tis empty now for me. That bitter cup, love, drank it up. Now blessings draft for me. Would you pray for me, with me? Jesus, we thank you that you drank that cup for us. We thank you that you did not shy away, but for the joy that you was set before you, you endured the cross and despised the shame. And because of that, we are clean. Or because you have redeemed us who are your people, because you have saved us by your grace alone, through faith alone, we fight for and love the unborn. But we don't do it with hatred or anger, but with anguish until all might know that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. It's in his name we pray. Amen.